Does anybody need to leave? I have everybody? All right. Good. All right. Well, how many of you are ready to finish out Genesis? We're, we're finishing it out tonight. Just, just, you know, the first 11 chapters. We've been on the first 11 chapters for 16 weeks. But that's so easy to do with the Word of God. It is combustible. It, it, um, it's like popcorn. You know, you just start thinking about it and it starts popping in your head. Amen? And coming alive to you. But let's go ahead and, and put up uh, uh, this message tonight. And this is, uh, we're going to look at the great plan begins. The great plan begins. And we're, we're finishing out chapter 11. In chapter 12, um, Abraham receives his covenant. And the rest of the Bible falls under that covenant and follows that covenant to the end of the book of Revelation. Powerful, powerful stuff. But uh, let's pray together and then I'll let you be seated. Father, we just thank you right now for the Word of God that is alive and you're feeding your people, Lord. You're feeding your people the Word of God. And you're building our faith and increasing our depth and strengthening our vision. And Lord, tonight I pray that you'll end this series on Genesis strong. And we thank you, Lord, for the Word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And uh, I could go on, that's for sure, but I said we would do the first 11 chapters because they, are the, they carry or contain the, the major four epical, epic events, four major epic events. And let's Let's see if we've learned them yet. Are you ready? Say them with me. The creation, the fall, the flood. About three of you got that last one. Let's try that again. The four epic events were the creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. One more time and we'll walk out knowing it. The creation, the fall, the flood, the tower. Those were defining moments in the whole history of mankind, in the history of the world, four epic events. And then when you get into Genesis 12, Abraham receives the covenant with God that uh, we're dealing with and that is dealing with us today. And uh, it, it, it defined and, and marked and, and uh, characterized the rest of the Bible, that Abrahamic covenant. But now tonight, let's look. Um, and my clicker is not working. There it goes. Now, we saw last time that Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, had decided to defy the judgment of God on his descendants, as well as God's command to scatter throughout the earth. Remember that? God told them to scatter, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, scatter. But Nimrod, Ham's grandson, said, no way. I'm not going to let you judge my descendants which God said he would do, the Canaanites, because of the way Ham broadcast his father's failure and mocked him, he brought a curse on his descendants. His descendants were the Canaanites. When the children of Israel crossed into the promised land, what were they dealing with over and over again? The Canaanites. Who were they fighting constantly and who was fighting them? The Canaanites. The descendants of Ham. So Nimrod, the grandson of Ham, carrying the same attitude, same attitude towards God and towards the people of God, said, no, we're not going to scatter. And, and 
you're not going to judge my descendants if I have anything to do with it. So he decided to build the city of Babel and the Tower of Babel, which I guess would have been like a Trump Tower in New York City. It was going to characterize the city. It was the landmark building of the city. And so God, who has never permitted men ever to realize a lasting social order from which he is excluded, confounded the language of the builders of the Tower of Babel. Folks, God has never allowed uh, a people to build a successful society excluding him. You can go to Russian communism. You can go to Italian fascism. You can go to terrorism, Russian Bolshevism. You can go to all of the isms where cultures have been built where they said, God isn't real. We don't want God. Uh, he's out of here. We're going to do this on our own. They were always cursed. They never prospered. That's why I'm afraid for our country. Because more and more and more we're secularizing and saying we don't need God. Kicked him out of school. Kicked him out of the public square. Kicked him out everywhere we can. Thank God there's a whole lot of believers still in America who can still pray. Amen? But Hitler didn't do it. Stalin didn't do it. Mussolini didn't do it, and Nimrod couldn't do it either. Okay? Now, but the Lord came down to see the city. Look what God did. He came down to take a look. And that's kind of scary, isn't it? And the tower that the men were building, and the Lord said this, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. What an incredible statement about the power of unity. Even when you're unified in an evil endeavor, God says there's a good chance they're going to pull it off if we don't stop it. That's the power of unity. If you can be that powerful in wicked unity, what can you be in righteous unity? Amen? So God said, come, let us go down. Somebody came up to me last week and said, what, did, what does that us mean? Who was us? Was it angels? And I said, no, it was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian statement. It is a statement revealing the existence of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, us. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, isn't it interesting that on the day of Pentecost, God came down and gave them a, langu a language that everyone around understood? That's the power of his blessing. When they all spoke in a tongue that all of the visiting nations could understand, declaring the wonderful works of God, God gave them a language they did not know and caused them to be understood. So the polar opposite happened here in Genesis 11. God said, I'm going to make it where no one can understand each other. So when God blesses you, I mean, look at all the ways he can bless you. He made all those folks understand each other on Pentecost, curse their speech here in Babel. Now, Nimrod and his followers were confounded in their evil plan by no longer being able to understand one another. Hence, they were scattered. They were scattered throughout the world just as God had commanded in the first place. If you don't do what God tells you to do, he'll see to it that it gets done anyway. Now, that's just a fact. It's better to flow with God than to stand against God. I guarantee you, you ain't going to win. Okay? Now, in the last half of Genesis 11, Moses returns to the tables of ancestry 
to all that he begot so-and-so, she begot so-and-so, begotten by so-and-so, and all of that. He goes to the tables of ancestry, uh, returns to what he had begun in chapter 10. If you read chapter 10, it's that constant, it's that whole record of lineage tracking uh, Noah's children, Noah's sons. Now, in chapter 11, he focuses on Abram's family tree. Really important here. Starting with Shem. Now remember that uh, Noah's three sons were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Shem and Japheth came under a blessing because they covered their father's sin. Ham came under a curse because he exposed him and mocked him. Now, he's going back to Shem, who God spoke a blessing over, through Noah when Noah woke up from his drunken state. And this is what it says in chapter 11, verse 10, two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad, or Arphaxad, or wherever you're from, you can call it whatever you want. The important name in there is Shem. Okay? Moses continues on until he reaches Terah, the father of Abram. So starting with Shem, he tracks Shem's lineage all the way down to the father of Abraham. The father of Abram, and I'm calling him Abram, that's before he went to sacrifice Isaac and God stopped him and he renamed him Abraham. But in chapter 11, he's Abram. And here, he comes to Terah, the father of Abram, and he names Terah's three sons. And they were Abram, Nahor, and Haran. For these men are significant in what follows. Let me just give you a little bit of lineage here. Uh, it's interesting. He thus traces Abram's descent from Noah through Shem. It was in Shem's line that God had found at last the man upon whose daring faith the rest of the Bible is made to hinge. Jesus came from the lineage of Shem. All right? So this is the blessed lineage, the holy lineage. And so he finally finds in Shem's lineage this man, Abram, who will obey God. Now when Moses arrives at Terah, Moses writing the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the first one being Genesis. So here's Moses riding along. When he arrives at Terah, he pauses to look at Abram's family ties. He had two brothers. Abram had two brothers, a niece and a nephew. His brother Haran's three children were Milcah, Iscah, and who? Lot. Now we know about Lot, maybe not the other two, but we know about Lot. Thus Lot is introduced into the story, a man who stands out so often in Scripture due to his contrast to Abram. Because Abram, Abram was a man of faith. Lot was a man of sight and, and selfish desire. And when you compare the two, Abram always stands out as the man of faith, the man of God. Lot as the man of the flesh, the man who goofs up, the man who follows his fleshly impulses and not God. That's the difference between the two. Now, Abram's second brother, Nahor, married their niece, Milcah, which was a common arrangement in those days. Another question I got last week, as soon as church was over, was 
it says Cain went out and took a wife. And they said to me, where did he find her? Right? Because all there was was Adam, Eve, Cain, Seth. So where did he go find a wife? Well, God doesn't give us all the names of the children of Adam and Eve, but they lived to eight, nine hundred years old. They had tons of children. And until Moses came, incest was not forbidden. Moses is the one that said, uh, brought, drew the line uh, between marrying, intermarrying in family and having relations with family. But until then, that's the way it had to be to, to repopulate the earth. Okay? So where did he find her? Well, she was a daughter of Adam and Eve. Or one of their offspring. <laughs> Genesis talks about kissing cousins way before Elvis. <laughs> All right? So this was common arrangement in those days. Abram's second brother. And look at this. For instance, when Abram married Sarah, he was marrying his half-sister. That's how he lied. Remember how when he lied, he said, look, we're in Egypt. You're a beautiful woman. Don't you dare tell them that you're married to me. You tell them you're my sister. And he lied. Well, it was kind of true, but it was kind of not true. And guess what? A half lie is as bad as a bad lie. So this is what's going on here. He, he, he married his half-sister, but nevertheless... Um, she was his wife legitimately now the marriage of Abram's brother Nahor is mentioned by Moses because he became the grandfather of Laban who was the father of Rachel and Leah remember old Laban the con artist who conned Jacob for like 20 years so there you go and Rebecca or and Rebecca Isaac's wife and Jacob's mother so did you get that I know this is kind of convoluted but um, Abram's brother Nahor is mentioned by Moses because he became the grandfather of Laban the con artist and Rebekah alright so here we go through the family tree now thus Moses focuses on Abram the person and prepares his readers for much that follows by noting some of his hero's immediate family ties his final observation records that Sarah was barren and had no children, and that mattered a lot in this story. Now, um, the name of Abram's wife, it says in chapter 11, verses 29 to 30, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Izcah. Don't you know, ah? I'm sorry, I could not... <laughs> I felt like a preacher all of a sudden. And, uh, God, duh. Anyway, now. Felt <laughs> like a Pentecostal preacher for a minute there. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. The story of Abraham is so significant in the counsels of God that the Spirit of God devotes 25% of the book of Genesis to the details of Abram. 25% of Genesis goes to Abram. Having focused on the person of Abram, Moses next records Abram's initial venture as a pilgrim. First focuses on his personhood, 
Then his pilgrimage. Okay? Now, we aren't told how God revealed himself to Abram. I've often wondered about that because there was no Bible. There was no Bible. There was no church. Nobody around him was walking with God. So I've wondered, did he hear an audible voice? Did God come to him in a dream? We don't know. But we do know this. He communicated with him when he was a pagan idolater in a land called Ur. He was a pagan. Abram was as lost as the day is long. He didn't know God. Up through the first 11 and a half chapters of Genesis, it looks grim for the human race, does it not? I mean, the whole earth has been wiped out and destroyed. God has had to judge it. God was sorry that he made it. The first 11 and a half chapters are depressing. It's like the first couple of chapters in Romans. You want to say, woe is me. It's marked by failure upon failure, judgment after judgment, and sorrow upon sorrow. We see only endless frustration on God's part and the deep depravity of sin on man's part, the first 11 and a half chapters. But this all changes in the last half of Genesis 11. It changes. Rays of hope begin to glimmer with God's call to Abram. The work of God in calling Abram and his family was the beginning of the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And what is Genesis 3.15? It's the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. And what was it? I'm getting my clicker to click here. There we go. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God told Adam and Eve, or told the devil actually. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is a prophecy that Messiah Jesus would come and destroy the works of the devil. John came along later in 1 John and said the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. All right, the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees was the beginning of the plan to bring forth Messiah. So this is hugely significant. Genesis eleven twenty-seven to 32 provides a bridge between the primeval history and the patriarchal history sections of Genesis. Patriarchal meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the Semitic race and the fathers of faith. With the introduction of Abram, his wife Sarah, his brother Nahor, and his nephew Lot, the journey of faith begins from Ur of the Chaldees in southern Mesopotamia to Haran, 500 miles up the Euphrates River. Ur of the Chaldees, watch this now, where Abram lived was an important city of Babylonia. It was a city of luxury, a city of attainment. But guess what? It was a city of darkness, total spiritual darkness. It was a pagan center of moon worship. Now, sun worship was real uh, common in the Old Testament and on into New Testament times. Moon worship was another thing. You either worship the sun, you worship the moon. You worship one of the things that God created, not the creator. And in Ur of the Chaldees, we have dug up archaeological artifacts and, and uh, records that show they were worship, worshipers of the moon. If you can imagine that, worshiping the moon. And what does God do? He goes into Ur, full of pagans, worshiping a planet that he created, and he sovereignly plucks Abram out of the dark. Sovereign. We serve a sovereign God. Here's Abram. He, he is as much a pagan as anybody else, but God somehow reached him. 
You're my man. I'm going to begin to fulfill Genesis 3.15 through you. Not by works, but by God's sovereign choice. Period. With no Bible, no prior knowledge of God, and certainly not having been raised in an atmosphere of faith, but rather moon worship, this makes Abram's call all the more amazing. God plucked him right out of pagan darkness and said, follow me. The pilgrim family of Abram set out in obedience to God and journeyed until they came to the city of uh, Haran or Haran. And there the sojourners made their first stop. They stopped. Now, folks, sometimes when you're in a walk of faith, you ought to stop. Regather your strength. Spend some time with God. Take a break. Listen to Him. Get in the Word. You need to stop. There's other times it's a mistake to stop. Right here, Abram made a mistake to stop. Haran was what we might call a frontier town of the Babylonian Empire, and like Ur of the Chaldees, it was totally devoted to moon worship, uh, the worship of a moon god. I guess they thought the smiling face was actually a god. There, the whole pilgrimage bogged down. The call of God on Abram bogged down and remained inert or bogged down for about 25 years until the death of Terah. He took a 25-year unnecessary break. He shouldn't have done it. It wasn't God's will. But there was a problem. The problem was father-in-law, or father, rather. Terah, many commentators believe, represents the old nature that lives inside of us. He represents the old nature in Scripture. And the old nature can only make token responses to divine things. See, God hadn't spoken to Terah. He hadn't spoken to Lot. He had only spoken to Abram. And he followed him so far, and then he said, basically, dude, I, you know, this is where I'm stopping. And Abram stopped with him for 25 years. You know, when I was talking about Sunday, and whoa, did I get some feedback from Sunday about friendships. Woo! Some good, some confused. What I was basically saying is, look, he's walking with someone who did not have his vision, did not have his word, did not know his God, was just along for the ride until he didn't like the ride anymore. And because he was with someone who didn't share his vision, he got held up for 25 years. Okay? Terah had become a chain around Abram's faith, and he greatly erred in not fully obeying God by allowing the world and the flesh to insert themselves between him and the divine call. Terah had to die for him to pick up the baton again and start running. Wow. But God's patient. If we were asked to describe the developing life of the Bible character Abraham in one word, it would be, of course, faith. Faith. In fact, that is exactly how Paul described him in Galatians 3.9 when he said, quote, read this with me, everybody. So then, those who are of faith, stop, are you of faith? Yes, you are. How'd you get saved? By works? No. How'd you get saved? By, in what? In Christ, by faith and by grace, not of works. So, those who are of faith, and that's you, are blessed along with Abraham the believer. What did Abraham do? He just believed the Word of God. What did you do? You believed the Word of God. 
And when you believe the Word of God, God transported you from darkness to light. He poured His Spirit into your spirit. He, he, he rebirthed you spiritually, and now you're a child of His. How did that happen? By faith. And you were declared righteous by faith. So was Abram. Abraham the believer, and we were blessed with him. Now, the Hebrew writers spoke of Abraham's faith in Hebrews 11, verse 8. Here's what he said. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out. Read the last part with me. Not knowing where he was going. I guarantee you the relatives thought he'd lost his mind. He was in a midlife crisis. Something was going wrong with him upstairs. He said, where are you going? Where are you going, Abe? I don't know. Well, how do you know which direction to go? Well, I know that much. I go that way. Well, where are you going to end up? I don't know. What are you going to do with all the family and the livestock? I don't know. You mean you're going not knowing where? You're going not knowing? I'm going not knowing. And you know what, folks? That's what faith will do. Faith will go when you don't know. If, if you knew, you wouldn't need faith. Faith will take you where you don't know where you're going. I mean, you can't imagine what it was like when we first saw this building here. And God told me, that's your building. I said, no, I don't. Amen. You know what, Lord? Help me to really hear you. Satan, get behind me. Because it was bad. It looked bad. I mean, you didn't see it, most of you, in the very beginning. It was rough. But God said, go. And I had to say, I don't know. We'll go anyway. But I've never been to Burleson. Not that we're in Burleson, but we're close to it. I didn't know this area. But, I, but guess what? I had to go where I didn't know. And that's what faith does. It says you're going without knowing everything. You walk by faith and not by sight. Now, Abraham showed his faith in the early biblical descriptions of his life by obeying God's order to go when he had no idea where he was supposed to be going. He didn't know. He just started walking. If you can imagine that. He just started walking. According to the Hebrew writer, his faith amounted to going without knowing. In Stephen's description of Abraham's call, when Stephen was preaching his last message, we see this clearly. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, Stephen preached, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. God did not initially show Abraham where he wanted him to go. The order from God to disembark came with very little explanation, and sometimes that's what faith will do. You don't know where you're going when you, I mean, you know you're going to heaven when you die, but you've never seen it. You don't really know where you're going. It's all going to be a big surprise to you. Surprise! You're going to see what you believe by faith, but you never really saw. You've never even seen Jesus, but you're in love with him. What's the matter with you? How can you be in love with somebody you've never seen? Well, you can by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you're going to see him one day. And you're going towards him right now, but you don't know where you're going. You, you don't know exactly what you're going to see. Except your faith tells you you're going to see it. Promised Land. A wonderful article by uh, Dave Reddick, uh, the editor of the Preacher's Study. 
is worth quoting here. He points out several nuggets about the life of faith. And since we're closing with Abram, I want to talk to you about faith for a minute. Just talk to you about the life of faith. What do you learn from Abram, who became Abraham, the father of our faith? What can we learn? Because how many of you in here are walking by faith? I mean, how many of you are believing God for some things that have not yet appeared in your life? How many? Amen? Say that. Let me see the hands again. How many of you are believing for something that has not materialized into time and space yet? Yeah, it's by faith. Faith takes what, you, what is out there in the unseen world and brings it into the seen world. Now, let's look at a few, a few things we learned from Abram. The first is the call of faith involves uncertainty. It involves uncertainty. It, it was very uncertain for us to come here to this building. The cost, the money, the things that needed to be done, it was overwhelming. But even in the uncertainty, God said, do it. And by faith, we stepped. And what wasn't here has materialized by the day. It came by faith. Very few of us like to move on a whim. Do you? Can I tell you one of the, one of the things in life I hate most is moving? I hate moving. In fact, I hate to uproot from one area and move to another at all. If I'm going to move, which I haven't done in 19 years as of this teaching, I haven't moved. I'm in the same house. I cautiously evaluate what we are leaving and compare it to what I'm headed for. And I size it up. But then it always comes down to what God tells me to do anyway. But I don't like moving. Think about this for a minute. There was no opportunity for Abraham to consider the place. God was sending him because God didn't tell him where it was. He just said, start walking. Think about it, church. Powerful stuff. When God told him to move, he couldn't pick up the phone and have a Canaanite newspaper sent to him. <laughs> Let me check out the real estate in Canaan. He couldn't do that. But I guarantee you, if you had to move tonight and you knew you were going somewhere and, and you were going to be moved by this time next week, you'd have that paper. You'd be on uh, the phone. You'd be checking that place out, finding out everything you could about where you were going. The schools, the stores. Kathy would want to know about the malls. But there was nothing for him to find out. He just had to start walking. He couldn't contact the local cha uh, Canaan Chamber of Commerce to consider his business, business pros uh, prospects in this land God wanted him to go to. There was no Canaan Chamber of Commerce. There was no internet, which some of you would go into withdrawal if you got removed from. There was no internet where he could check out the price of housing. God didn't tell him where he was going. All he had to go on was a command to leave his home from a God he didn't really know. And the promise that he would be shown more about it in the future. God just tapped him on the shoulder. You're my man, Abram. Come on out. Come on out. If Stephen's record of the call is complete in Acts 7, we see that Abram had exactly one sentence from God. One verse. Here it is. Depart from your country and your relatives and come into the land that I'll show you. End. And in that first word, scary, depart. That's not very much information. Beyond that, the only answer implied was trust me. Come on, Abram, depart. I'll show you where you're going in time. Uh, compared to Abraham, 
How much information do you and I have about God's will today? We got 66 books. We have 1,189 chapters. And I didn't put here, we've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have the church. We have a multitude of counselors. We have all kinds of people who know God, who can give us sound counsel. He had none of that. No wonder he's called the father of our faith. He had no one he could go to and say, hey man, I received a word from God. Pray about this with me. There wasn't anybody. These writings contain uh, story after story and promise after promise. That is the Bible of God's faithfulness. More than enough to give us the confidence we need to produce faith. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, and we've got plenty of it. Now, the second thing we learn from Abram is the call of faith is not always convenient. If you are addicted to convenience, you're never going to follow God fully in your life. If convenience is your idol, you're never going to be able to follow God in lordship because he is going to inconvenience you sometimes. Guaranteed. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That, that was an overwhelming response, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> you say, why would God do that? Because his will is going to run counter to your flesh. He's going to inconvenience you. Amen. See that sign on the graphic? Tough decisions ahead. And God will inconvenience you. He'll get you, get you out of your lazy boy. He'll get you away from the TV. He'll, he'll get you... He, sometimes he will require of you something that inconveniences you. Get up early and go to early morning prayer. Not very many are being inconvenienced yet, but they will. He, he, you're here tonight, some of you, because you wanted to go home more conveniently, and God said, no, I want you to, to go to church, and he inconvenienced you. But now you're glad you came. And you're always glad you follow God when you do, but there's going to be times he'll inconvenience you. <clears throat> Think for a few moments about that six-letter command, depart. Think of what that meant to Abraham, depart. Ur was all he'd ever known. He had to uproot whatever business he was in. He had a business because he was successful. He had to uproot his family. He probably had to sell those holdings that couldn't be taking, taken with him from Ur. Inconvenience. He had to endure all the questions of well-meaning friends and family. I mean, you know what people said. If you told people you were moving, and they said, where? I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? God just told me to head down 35. <laughs> and he'd show me where to go. What would they do with you? They'd make some phone calls after leaving your presence. <laughs> they'd make some phone calls. They'd want to know what was wrong with you. What are you on? What are you drinking? What are you smoking? What are you shooting? What are you snorting? Who are you running around with? What cult have you hooked up with? You know that he had family, relatives saying, what do you mean? You're just leaving. What, what are you talking about? Inconvenience. Abram, they might have said, why would you leave all you have here to follow a God you can't even see? We've never seen this God of yours. What are you talking about? You and your relatives have lived here for many years, Abram. Do you mean to tell us that you're going to liquidate all that you have and move without even knowing where you're going? Yep, I'm going without knowing. The risk for Abraham was real, and faith does have real risk. He had to go to a place where there were strange people. Who could have known whether or not robbers, bandits, would take him and his family 
rob them, kill them, take their stuff and leave them there. He had to know he had heard from God. It was a risk. The risk of faith. Would there be highway robbers? To add this, to this, those who went with him also had to endure all the inconvenience and risk. And that was bigger for them than for him because they had not heard God. They were following the man. The scripture is clear. The God of glory had not appeared to Terah or Sarai or Lot. Only him. So he's just saying, come on. Come on, Lot. Come on, wife. Come on, dad. Where are we going? Don't know. We're going without knowing. Aren't you ready for an adventure? By the time they got to Haran, Terah said, enough. All right, they knew very little of the compulsion that drove Abram. They didn't understand it. Surely there must have been some searching questions. We know there were. What does that mean to you and me? Simply this, that we should expect faith to be difficult at times. God never promised you easy times if you walk by faith. That is an illusion. Anybody that told you that did not know faith. Faith has brought me more problems sometimes than if I had never walked in faith. Now I walk through it. Well, I never met the devil till I got saved and started walking with Jesus in faith. Faith has never been easy. Don't expect it to be. Faith is like a bike ride. Sometimes there's uphills. By the time you get to the top of that hill, you are completely out of breath and strained to pedal one more time. Then there's other times where you're just coasting down. Drink it up. You're going to need it. There's other times it's just level riding. But it's going to be a mix of those three. Never always easy. We should expect challenges to the status quo. Many of the people in our life will not understand our actions. It's a fact. There will be times when following God and obedience will mean inconvenience. We'll be misunderstood. People at times will think we're crazy. They surely must have thought Abraham was one fry short of a happy meal. I put that in there. I couldn't resist it. You know they did. You know they did. Now listen to how the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing, weird thing, out of the ordinary thing, or unnatural thing were happening to you. Times in faith you're going to have a fiery ordeal. It will test you and try you to the marrow of your bones. Today I was cycling. I took a little break and cycled, and man, there was a strong wind. I mean, just really strong. And going the first half, it was at my back. But coming back, it was in my face. And, and I thought, you know, it was so easy with the wind at your back, but this one is what develops the muscle. When it's in your face and you're having to fight the wind, and just bow your head and walk into it. There's going to be times the wind's at your back, and there's going to be times the wind is against you. And you just go. Faith can sometimes be a fiery ordeal, and to a generation that sometimes considers it an ordeal just to get out of bed to come to church on Sunday, that's a real challenge. The call of faith may involve uncertainty, and it may involve inconvenience. Here's the last thing. We learn from Abram's call that the call of faith is stronger than family ties. 
Now, I learned this when I first got saved. And nobody in my family walked with God. Nobody. And I had to, well, I didn't have to. I was just, I was witnessing to everything that moved and sometimes the things that didn't move. I was witnessing all the time. And my family got it first and foremost. And they gave me the boot. And they'd see me coming and run into their rooms and shut the door. Christmas was tense. And I found, and you know, my own mother, and she'll tell you, she's a believer today and prays every morning and is a wonderful little woman of God now. But at first, she mocked me. She made fun of me for years. And I learned something. When they came to Jesus one day, they said, your family's outside. Jesus said, who's my family? My family are those who hear the will of God and do it. That's my family. And I found that to be true. I'm closer to believers than I am to members of my own family who, as of tonight, don't really walk with God. There's no question about it. I have closer fellowship. I have closer oneness, closer unity. Christian familyhood is stronger than natural blood. It just is. It just is. Jesus said it, and therefore it's true, and therefore it's good. Depart, depart from your country and your relatives, God said. What do you mean, depart from my relatives? But that's what God said to Abram, Abram in Acts 7-3. Depart from your country and your relatives. He was to leave his relatives behind in Ur. Why? Because they were all idol worshipers, and he was being called out by God. He wasn't being elitist or, or snooty. He wasn't playing like he's better than them. He just said, we don't have much in common anymore. I'm following the living God. You're an idolater. I love you, but I've got to follow him. As already mentioned, the ruins of Ur that have been excavated show that the city was full of idol worship, especially worship of the so-called God of the moon, the patron God of Ur. Even Terah, Abram's, Abraham's father, according to Joshua 24, verse 2, was an idol worshiper, even his dad. And that's how he was able to be a chain around his feet when they got hung up in Haran for 25 years. Jesus clearly taught us that the call of faith is stronger than our family allegiances. And here's that verse I just quoted. Well, no, this is another one, Matthew 10, 37. Quote, he who loves father or mother more than me. Think about this, y'all. Is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can make an idol out of a person. You can make an idol out of your family. You can make an idol out of one of your parents. You can make an idol out of your spouse. What's an idol, Pastor Jeff? Anything that takes supremacy over your heart in the place of God. That's an idol. You can make an idol out of a boyfriend, a girlfriend. You can make an idol out of anything. Anything that becomes first the, the treasure of your heart over him has become an idol, and it'll make you stumble. You'll stumble because of it. You won't be able to follow God. If you love your son or your daughter, you can make an idol out of a child. I've seen many Christian parents do this. They'll have a son or a daughter who goes into sports, and they excel. 
and they're so proud of them, and, and rightly so, but you see it crosses a line eventually where they're actually idolizing the child, and the child can't handle that. No human being can handle being your God. They can't do it They're not because they're, they're not God. Does that mean that Jesus is anti-family? Not at all. Some of the strongest teaching about family loyalty anywhere is found in the Bible. Look what Paul said. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of, where, of who and where, his household, he has what? Denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's why welfare, if you're able to work, is wrong. That's why we have created almost a universally welfare state where 50% of our populace now doesn't even pay taxes. And they know how to work the system. And your hard work and your taxes are footing the bill for them who do nothing, but they could do something. And that's a sin against God. That's a sin against the Bible. That's what I call um, misdirected compassion. Real compassion is teaching them how to work and then kicking them out there in the street till they find a job. Now, I'll help them until then, but i got to know they're looking. Amen, Pastor Jeff. I so agree with that. Being a Christian will make any man a better husband, son, father, or grandfather. Being a Christian will make any woman a better wife, daughter, mother, or grandmother. Okay? It's just that when compared to our dedication to Him, our faith has got to be stronger than our family ties, or family will hold you back from the will of God. If it all ever comes down to a choice between God, God's will and my family's will, faith means I will choose God. I will choose God. The call to faith must be stronger than family ties. Now, at the outset, Abram was very young in the faith. He had much to learn. But with trial and error, ups and downs, successes and failures, Abram began to take those giant steps forward that lifted him from the darkness and obscurity of paganism into the spotlight of faith. Closing, one day his name would be changed by God himself from Abram to Abraham as a symbol of transformation from a life of paganism and worldliness to that of a man of faith in the living God. Can we stand together? Well, God is good. Amen? Amen? I have such a sense that we're headed towards some very, very strong times in God. That while it's getting darker out there, God's going to be blessing us and giving us ways to reach people. To do it, we're going to have to be people of faith. Willing to take steps of uncertainty. Willing to take risks. Wise risks. Willing to put Him above any person, place, or thing. Can we just pray now, Father, thank you. Abraham put you above, even his only son. And when you tested him, Lord, he was willing to place you and your will over his only dear son. And so, Lord, you declared him righteous and a man of faith. Help us to put you absolutely first above all else and be willing to take the wise risk 
of uncertainty as we walk on the Word of God. And we thank you, Lord, that we're going, not knowing exactly what lies ahead, but we know that it's there by faith. In Jesus' name, let's worship Him before we go. God is so good. Sing it, everybody. God is so yes, he is. good. Yes, He is. God is so good. He's so good to me. Now lift it up and sing, I love you so. Just tell the Lord, I love you so. Yes, Lord. Amen. Isn't God good? Amen.